You're listening to a sermon from First Family Church from the series, The King is in the King, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Aren't you glad that consequences don't circumvent God's sovereign will? You see, Mark's not in our church here, but his story resonates with many of you, who, as he said, have experienced loss. It, it brings you to tears as well, but it's actually how God brought you to himself, isn't it? You look back at your life and there's consequences, there's things that you suffered, that, that, that sin cost you, but it was in that very um, tornado of consequences, or shall we say the undertow of sin, that God actually showed you your true condition. And through that, revealed the gospel to you and saved you. So in one sense, you're like, man, those are rough days. And other things, you're like, I wouldn't trade in for anything. Kind of this mixed bag of emotions. I'm just so glad that, that our consequences don't circumvent God's will to save us. And it's this very truth, it's that concept that we're going to see today in week nine of what we're calling the kings and the king. This is season two, episode nine. You could also refer to this as week three of the sin and the sins. So one's the larger series. This is kind of the mini-series. What we're doing is we're looking at the saga in 2 Samuel, chapter, 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 19. So take your Bible and turn there, would you? 2 Samuel 11 through 19. We've been in this for about three or four weeks, and I admit to you it's heavy. All right? Or as my grandson says, it's heavy. Uh, this is dark. It's, it's stunning. It comes at us in full force that sin should be taken seriously. Its consequences are grave. There's very little in these chapters, if, at least at first reading, that we find positive. But I am overjoyed today to be able to show you how this section concludes. And it's not going to conclude in a dark fashion. I'm just uh, I'm really excited to be able to just share with you these remaining three chapters. In fact, what you're going to find today is that you'll experience what an old journalist used to always tell us every day. See if you recall this simple line. Now, the rest of the story. If you do, you're over 45 for sure, right? <laughs> Paul Harvey would always say every day, now the rest of the story, right? We're going to get that today. We're going to find out just what's going on behind kind of what's going on, all right? In these remaining three chapters of 2 Samuel in this one section, 16 through 19. Now, as we conclude today, I want to make sure that you understand a principle of Bible study that I want you to kind of keep in front of your head today. You're always to ask yourself, what's the author's intent? The big word for that's called authorial intent. And so we don't read the Bible saying, okay, I like those verses. What do they mean to me? It really doesn't matter what it means to you. It, mean, it matters what it meant to the author. God's the author, and through the human agent, in this case, uh, the writer of these uh, historical books in the Old Testament, we have to ask ourselves, what is the author trying to communicate to us? I want you to keep that in mind as we read these chapters, because the tendency may be 
to, to think it's all about David or it's all about a dark period. And while those may be secondarily true, that's not the primary intention of the author. And the good news of these three chapters is we're going to find out what is the author trying to communicate in this section where it's all about David's sin and his consequences and the sins that ripple out from that. What is the author trying to communicate? We're going to find out today. And I think you'll be very pleased. And just it's a beautiful moment as we, are at, as we get near the end of this. The authorial intent. It begins in 16 with seeing that God is continuing his discipline upon David. We left last week. David was fleeing Jerusalem. You remember that at the end of 15? He's leaving Jerusalem. His son Absalom is coming into Jerusalem. This is not a good moment. In fact, if you're Absalom, you're thinking it's a great moment actually. You're thinking that this is the culminating moment of your, of your coup. You know, I, I, I'm taking over. My dad's leaving town. I'll be in charge in no time. If you're David, you're thinking this is a disintegrating moment. In fact, I would say both those words come together in a very sad verse, what I think is probably the apex verse, at least of this initial section. Look at 16.22 with me, would you? I want to be appropriate in this verse, but I want to be honest about it as well. We gave you warning, I think, of these weeks in these passages. There may be a little bit of FF13 here going on, okay? But notice, as Absalom comes into Jerusalem, he asks Ahithophel, how can I drive the stake into my father's heart? What can I do that would make the, the largest uh, stab into him relationally, into him politically? What can I do that would say, Dad, you're gone. I'm in charge. I own this now. And Ahithophel tells him to go to the roof and commit sexual immorality with all of his father's concubines. And so Absalom does that. Verse 22 of 2 Samuel 16. They pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. Now, I would remind you, this is the roof probably that David was on when he saw Bathsheba originally. If you go back to chapter, what is it, 11, verses 1 and 2, he's in the king's house. He's not at war and he's looking out from his rooftop. Here, Absalom now is back and he's in the king's house and he's wanting to know, how can I make the greatest statement that dad's gone and I'm in charge? And so he goes to the roof, the place where his father's temptation began. And here he goes into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. This is what I would call the apex of God's judgment upon David. It it fulfills in its clearest and most tragic way, 2 Samuel 12, 12. Look back there with me, would you? God did keep his word when he promised David that what you did secretly, I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. And sure enough, in a very immoral fashion, Absalom is used by God to bring David's discipline and judgment to its apex. Absalom thinks this is a culminating moment. He thinks he's in the palace, and so militarily, politically, relationally, he thinks he's putting his dad down for the count. David thinks this is a disintegrating moment. And he's leaving Jerusalem. Um, He's uh, embarrassed. He's ashamed. He's fearful. He's broken. But I would say to you, neither of those is completely accurate. I think what's happening here is this is an escalating moment. Now, if I say that to you, you'll wonder, what is it escalating towards? 
Now, the answer to that question depends on which uh, perspective you take. If you take a human perspective, you're going to answer this way. You're going to say it's escalating towards civil war. Don't be distracted, okay? Listen very carefully. Civil war was about to break out because a son had taken over his father's kingdom, um, staged a coup, and rebelled and revolted against his dad. And so they're, they're, they're going to meet head on, right? But I don't think that's what we're escalating towards. I think we're escalating towards God's will. God is actually using every bit of this. Yes, the sin and the consequences to bring about his will. Let me show you what I mean. Because things change in 17. God brings David's judgment to an apex. And then things begin to change. So God continues his discipline, but watch this. Chapter 17, now God begins to confuse Absalom. In fact, the same man who told Absalom, you go into your father's concubines on the roof, he also tells Absalom, he says, his name's Ahithophel, he says, Absalom, I think the way to, to get your father is to, to kind of go under the shade of night. Let's do undercover uh, work and let's take him out when he's not ready. Let's sneak in. Let's kill only David. Let's not kill the people. Let's just take out your dad. And actually, I think that probably was the best strategy. But for some reason, and we know it's God, but before that verse comes upon us, we find that Absalom actually then in verse 5 asks for the advice of Hushai. So, Ahithophel is really a trusted advisor. Uh, David trusted him when, in, in that time, and Absalom now trusts him. But for some reason, Absalom now wants a second opinion. So Hushai comes in, who, by the way, is a double agent. He's actually been sent by David to kind of infiltrate Absalom's ranks. And so Hushai sees his opportunity now to kind of give some really bad military advice. So he says, you know what, Absalom? Don't do it undercover. Don't do a secret op. Let's just call your dad out in the middle of the day, and let's just have a battle in, in an open field, maybe around the forest. Let's just go at it army to army. And I think what this does is this appeals to Absalom's pride. He says, Absalom, everyone will notice, everyone will watch. I mean, you, you'll be the hero. And for some reason, Absalom says, you know what? And the elders too say, look at me at verse, what is it, uh, 14? They felt that the, the council of Hushai, the archite, is better than the council of Ahithophel. Militarily, it wasn't, by the way. So why did they believe, and why were they confused? Why did they believe uh, Hushai? The Bible tells us, end of 14, For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Do you catch this? Suddenly, we're seeing a shift in things. Yes, David is, had sinned. His consequences are rippling out to himself and others. There's no doubt happening, but suddenly... God is still working in the middle of all this to keep David as the king. That was his will. So God is working his will even in the middle of man's sin and consequences. What we find is that the Lord confuses Absalom. Absalom agrees to fight David in the open field in the forest. Some spies hear of this, get word, of course, from Hushai back to David. We can read about some of the um, different details there. David does hear about it. He leaves. And so he's crossing Jordan. He and his people are very weary. And we find that in the end of 17, even in the midst of this continued escape, God comforts David. Look at verse 27 with me, would you? Chapter 17. When David came to Mahanim, 
Shobi the son of Nahash from Rabab, the Ammonites, and Makir the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim. They all brought beds and basins and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, utensils. It's a good meal going on here, isn't it? And David was at a very low point. His men and women, they were at a low point. They're on the run. They're humiliated. They're without a city. They're without a palace. They know a battle's just ahead. And God uses this situation to encourage and to strengthen them physically, emotionally, relationally. In fact, verse 29 shares with us that uh, the people in David were hungry. They were weary. They were thirsty. And God keeps them strengthened. He keeps them nourished. Why? Because a battle was about to ensue in which God would defeat the threat to David's kingship. So if you ever wondering, like, and I'm going to say it this way, listen very carefully. If you ever wonder, like, well, what side is God on? I would say God's on God's side. And he knows that his will was for David to be king, and so he's going to accomplish his will. And he's doing that in this passage, even in the middle of all the consequences and the sin of David. So suddenly you see, you see a shift, develop, you see a, a, um, a theme developing that this really isn't about David per se, only. It's not just about all the consequences, it's about how God still accomplishes will even in the middle of sin and consequences. Let's keep reading. As 18 unfolds, we see not only has God already um, confused Absalom, he's continued David's discipline, he's comforted David now and he's cared for him, but now he actually confirms the kingdom through this battle. They do meet in the open field as well as the forest around it. They go to battle, Absalom is killed, the news reaches David, he's blown away by that. In fact, he gets the news twice at the end of 18, and it really breaks his heart. And, and as a father, I would say rightly so. There's no easy way to hear that news. What's unfortunate is David heard it, and he made it a personal matter. And so as 19 kind of unfolds to about verse 8, what you have is David making his personal tragedy more of a national sorrow. But that's actually not what occurred. There was not national sorrow. Church, you listen to me? It was actually a national victory. The enemy had been defeated. And so it took a really good friend of David's to come to him. His name is Joab and say, David, if you make this national victory a personal sorrow, you're going to lose all your men. Look what he says in about verse 7 of chapter 19. He says, you should go out and speak kindly to your servants. In other words, don't blame them for killing your son. Thank them for saving the nation. See, David here was wallowing in self-pity. He was making this personal. And it took a good friend to say, hey, don't make this personal. David had the humility to hear that. He said, Joab said to me, if you, if you, if you don't go out and thank the people and, and celebrate this with them... Not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. David, you think it's been bad so far? You make this about you and not about the nation, it'll get even worse. <laughs> and David has the humility to hear this, and he says in verse 8, The king arose and took his seat in the gate. Now watch this next phrase. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. Underline that phrase, mark it in red, because that's God's will. So, guys, watch this. From 11-1, when David does not go to battle and do what kings do, and he sins with Bathsheba, sin and consequences have been just enveloping Israel. But suddenly, look, 
The king is now back in the gate, exactly what God had prophesied before he ever sinned. Did the sin and consequences thwart God's will? No. And so you begin to see the author's intent in this. You begin to see the real theme of this section of Scripture. It's not only that sin has consequences. It's not only that sin is serious. It's not only that our consequences affect us and others. It's also that even in the middle of those consequences, they don't override God's will. Amen. We'll talk more about that in a minute, okay? But I just want you to see how this text kind of unfolds from 16 to 19. That yes, there is a number of things that happen. But we're seeing God accomplishing his will. I've drawn this out for you in a chart that I think might help you kind of get the bigger picture here. This helped me a lot as I kind of sketched it out earlier in the week. Tanner kind of made it look a lot nicer. You wouldn't have liked my pencil markers, I'm sure. But this will kind of give you a, a snapshot of these eight or nine chapters, okay? Notice a couple of things that I think will, will help us see the theme that's happening. In 11.1, you see Absalom and David both heading in different directions because of David's sin, right? David's heading downward because of the consequences. And I'll even say this, Absalom seems to be heading upward because of consequences. Both are actually just perceived notions. Because what was really happening is, in spite of both the success and failure of these people, God's will is still on track. Are you with me? God is accomplishing his will to keep David as king. And so he confuses Absalom, he cares for David and confirms the kingdom. I think 1622 is the apex of both David's humiliation as well as Absalom's perceived culmination. In the end, though, it's really not David or Absalom that we're celebrating, rejoicing. It's the fact that God has kept his promise. And so again, God comes, and, uh, comes through as the main character of the story. It's his will that's done. It's not David's, it's not Absalom's, it's God's will. And so this chart reminds us of something that we said last week. And this is still true, but it's only partially complete. And that's how we ended last week, and so we kind of left you hanging a little bit. I'm just going to finish it up this week. We said this last week, that, that consequences are the undertow of sin, right? And they affect both us and others. That's true, but it's almost incomplete. Like, okay, is that the whole point? Like, Thanks for that. We, we could have told you that. But that's actually not the major point of this section. Here's the, the more complete thought. While consequences are the undertow of sin that eventually affects both others and ourselves, that's 12, 13, 14, and 15, watch this. They never ultimately override God's will. And to that, we suddenly come out of the darkness of this text into the beautiful light that God will always keep his word and accomplish his will. And on that, we rejoice even in the middle of difficult things, of hard texts, of painful situations, of tough consequences, of sad sin, none of that thwarts God's will. I think that's really the author's intent in this eight or nine chapter section about David's sin and how it rippled out in so many other sins. It's not to glorify sin. It's to highlight his power over sin and to do his will regardless of man. Now, as you think about this, I want to share with you four things about God's will that, that I think are pretty interesting, okay? They'll help us maybe process what we've read in these chapters, although we've hit it kind of from a pretty 30,000-foot view. You may have read it beforehand as well. 
Here's some things I, that I think will help us as we think about God's will and how he accomplishes in spite of our sin and so forth. Four things to write down. First of all, God's will can be accomplished in response to prayer because prayer is one of God's ordained means. Now, an ordained means is simply an act that, that we are involved in, in obedience to God, that actually is used by God to accomplish a purpose. Okay? That's what prayer is. In fact, did you know that we're to actually pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Did you know that? It's actually how Jesus taught the disciples to pray in his model prayer. He said, pray that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth. So it is right and biblical and proper to pray, God, would you do your will on earth? Now, question for you. If you don't pray that, will God do his will? Yes. You're a little hesitant, like, oh, it's a trick question. <laughs> he will do his will. Then why do we pray for it? Because it's an ordained means. It's the means by which God accomplishes his will. It's much like the preaching of the gospel. Could God save someone in any way he wanted to? The answer is yes. But he has chosen the ordained means of preaching to save those who have yet to believe. He says through Paul that through the foolishness of preaching, he saves those. He says in another verse that it's by the hearing of the gospel that faith is awakened, that God gives faith in that fashion. And so we preach Christ. And that's why he says we should send people because how can they hear if there's not a preacher? And how can a preacher go unless he's sent? So we believe that the proclamation of the gospel is essential to salvation. It's the ordained means by which God saves people. They hear the gospel, the truth about Christ. Does that make sense, guys? That's what's happening here. God's will occurs and happens, is accomplished as God's people pray. That's why we say it for family a lot. And we'll continue to say it's prayer is your first and best action. In fact, I wrote this week and I would maintain that it would benefit all of us to remember that we're to pray without ceasing. One of the few things in the Bible that we're told to do without stopping pray. And when you feel like fainting, God said, men should pray. So I know you think that, and I think that sometimes us doing things is our first and best action. But actually that's not true. While we can follow up with actions, our first and best action is always to pray. When you're about to quit, when you don't understand, when you feel like you don't know where to turn, what to do, where to go, Pray, 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 pray. Would you say it with me? Pray, P-R-A-Y, pray. It's one of the ordained means by which God accomplishes will. You are more powerful on your knees than in any other posture of your life. Second observation about God's will let me back up for a minute. I say that to you because what we saw play out in these chapters, I think, is actually a prayer, an answer to prayer of David's in 1531. In fact, look, would you look at 1531 just for a moment? When David was told that Ahithophel was trading camps and going with Absalom, he prayed, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Do you see that? And what plays out in 16, 17, 18, and 19 is really an answer to a prayer of David 
in chapter 15. And was God going to do that regardless? I think so. He's going to accomplish his will. He's going to keep David as king. That's what he promised. And yet he did it in response to a prayer from David. That's why I say to you, prayer is one of the ordained means by which God accomplishes his will. Second thing I want to mention to you is this. The second observation. Prayer is, excuse me, God's will is accomplished in spite of our performance. You can't find really a good character in these chapters, okay? (laughs) Is that okay to admit to you? There's just not really a ton of moral heroes in here. You find double agents, people switching sides, adulterers, adulteresses. You find victims and villains. And yet somehow, in the middle of all of that, like a laser, God says, I will do what I promised. David will stay king. That's amazing to me. And it's encouraging. Because, I mean, I've got some moments where I shine and some moments where, man, it's, I'm not shining. I sin. A lot like you. Moments where you shine and moments where you sin. Did you know that God's will is not contingent on your success or failures? He is powerful even in our messes and successes to do what He has promised. Third observation I'd make about God's will is this. It is often accomplished through providential means. Let me define that for you. Providential means would be a natural occurrence of life under the supernatural authority of God. I'll repeat that for you one more time. A providential mean is the natural occurrence of life under the supernatural authority of God. And this story is filled with them. Like, for instance, the fact that Absalom had really heavy, long, beautiful hair. You ever wondered why the, the author inserts a couple of sentences about that in chapter, what is it, 14? And if you're reading along the story, you're like, who cares about his hair? This is a salon factor that doesn't matter to us, you know? But actually it does, because later when he's in the forest and there's low-hanging branches, and you're told that he caught his hair in the trees and was suspended there with no, he was defenseless, you begin to realize, oh, I know how that happened because he had beautiful, heavy, long hair. Like it just happened that he was in a forest with really long hair and low-hanging branches. It didn't just happen, but it appears that way, doesn't it? It just so happened that uh, Absalom asked for a second opinion in chapter 17. There's a number of things that we look here and say, man, how did that occur? It's a natural life occurrence, and yet it's really not natural. It's supernatural. God's intending over it. Just like it says in chapter 17, God ordained Ahithophel to be confused by the advice so that God could judge Absalom and continue in David's kingship. These are all things that are very natural in one sense, and yet they're very supernatural in another. We call that providential. And that's how God's will is accomplished. Most of you, listen very carefully, most of you experience God's will this way. Does it mean that God doesn't do miracles and supernatural acts that are blatant and obvious? But for the most part, you go to college and you meet someone in fine art survey that you've never seen in your life. Come to find out, they're beautiful. You have a date and you get married and 29 years later you're still married living in Ankeny, Iowa. I don't know how that occurred. I wasn't planning on taking find out survey as a junior and she's a freshman. But God knew that, didn't he? Put us in the same class together and 
Those things just, quote unquote, happen, don't they? You could probably list a number of things in your life. It just happened, but they really didn't just happen, did they? That's what I'm saying, guys. God's will unfolds in our life in a very providential way. I would encourage you to have eyes to see what God is doing, even in what you think is the natural unfolding of your life. Because God is in control. There are no accidents. Fourthly, God's will is always accomplished because of God's faithfulness to his own character and promises. I think this is the one point that I've been meditating on most this week and that I'm just so thankful for. Because when you read this story, here's what God did not do. God did not do this. Well, David, you've put forth a better effort than Absalom. I think you've got a few more brownie points. And I, I think on a scale of you know, good and bad, you probably weigh a little better than Absalom. So I'm going to help you stay king. And Absalom, man, you're just a dirty, rotten scoundrel. Dude, you've got a list of wickedness that even it beats your dad. So you're kind of worse. So Absalom, we're not going to help you. And God didn't keep his promise because of anything Absalom or David did or didn't do. You know why God worked in these situations and these consequences and even in this sin to keep David as king. You know why? Because that's what he promised. And God will not break his word. The word for that is faithful. And so what suddenly comes to us and what we see now as the thread in the chapters is really not David's sin primarily. It's not Absalom's revolt. It's not even the consequences. What is it? It's God's faithfulness to his word. Christian, you can take comfort that what God has promised you, he will do. But Todd, you don't know what I did. You're right, I don't. I know who God is. Todd, you don't know what happened. You're right, I don't, but I know who God is. Todd, you don't know what occurred. I don't, but I know who God is. And what God has promised you, he will do. Amen, church? Prime example. The fact that you in this auditorium right now are are still saved. If you're a believer, the fact that you're still saved today is proof positive God has kept his word to you. Because if you could be lost after God saved you, you would be. No doubt, since God saved you, you've sinned more times than you can count. So have I, right? You've had moments of doubt. Times perhaps you thought, is this really true? And if you could have fallen away, my bet is you would have. But you didn't. Why? Is it because you've got the tightest grip in the world? On God? Is it because you just have a, a stronger faith? No, it's because God's got a tight grip on you. And no one can pluck you out of his hand. And he has promised that he will not let us stumble, but he will present us faultless. The fact that you are still saved today is proof positive. God keeps his word not because of you, but because of himself. That's why I'm so thankful that even in the darkness of these chapters, even in the darkness of that miniseries title, The Sin and the Sins, the truth is the glorious truth of God's character shines through and we see that, you know what? God will not break his promise. Go back to 1 Samuel 15 and 16. He takes his spirit from Saul. 
They anoint David and he promises this will be the king. He's not changed that up to this point. So guess who is still king in 19.8 sitting in the gate? David. Why? Surely not because of David. Can we amen that? <laughs> and surely not because of Absalom or Joab or Abiathar or Shammai. All these characters that we have a hard time keeping track of, right? None of them succeed or fail and, and thwart God. It's because God is faithful to himself that David is king. That's the kind of God we serve who today, in the middle of your messes and consequences and sin, will keep his word to you. Hallelujah, church. It reminds me of a verse in Psalm 33. Interestingly, one of the Psalms in the book that David's primarily responsible for writing. Look at this verse and notice a couple of contrasts in it which will show us just whose will is being accomplished here, okay? Here's Psalm 33. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. You may say, oh, amen, we love that verse. But notice the juxtaposition of two things in, this, in these verses. Go back to the previous verse, can we? Here's verse 10. The Lord brings what to nothing? The counsel of the nations. But look at the next verse. What actually stands forever? The counsel of what? So there's two councils going on here. Which one comes to nothing? The council of nations. It's the word for power and authority, isn't it? But it, it means nothing. What really stands? The council of the Lord. Look at the next word, previous verse here. He frustrates the plans of whom? The people. So all these different language groups, all the different ethnicities, they've all got their plans. He says, really, he frustrates those because what matters is the plan of what? His heart. So let me ask you a question. Biblically speaking, whose will is actually done? Man's or God's? The answer is clear. It is always God's will that's accomplished. It's his plans from his heart that he accomplishes. And it's in spite of nations. It's in spite of peoples. And with all due respect, it's in spite of you and me. <laughs> That's just how great he is. Let me see if you have any questions, and then I just want to make one last application from these chapters. Here's the first question that came in. Is anything just natural or coincidental? No, but I want to make sure we understand the word natural. If by natural we just mean earthly, yes, there are some things that are Natural. They happen in the normal course of life. But if you mean natural like, oh, they just, just happen, like we have no explanation for them, I don't believe that. There are no coincidences with God. There is nothing that just, oh, surprising. You know, and God's not ever surprised. We know that. So in that sense, no, nothing's ever natural or coincidental. It's all sovereignly superintended by God. That's the word sovereign. And by the way, there's no partial sovereignty. If you're partially sovereign, you're not sovereign. Are you with me? So, though we experience life in this way, kind of naturally, and though we have to admit from a human level, it seems at times coincidental, we know theologically no such thing exists. God is orchestrating life and all of history to his grand purposes. Good question. Let's take one more, can we? Why did Ahithophel kill himself? 
Let me mention before I answer that, that there are a number of stories in these chapters that we didn't even cover, such as the suicide of Ahithophel. There's the spying and the hiding in the well of some spies. There's a number of things that happened. We just were covering them from a larger view, okay? On this exact account, Ahithophel must have known that since his advice wasn't listened to, that actually Absalom's army wouldn't stand a chance against David's. And uh, maybe he was aware that Hushai was a double agent and was kind of sabotaging the army. I don't know. But I think what he knew was, when David wins, I'll be the first guy killed. (laughs) And so he just took his life in advance. I think he knew the plan wouldn't work. And personally, most commentators would say this to you, that actually Ahithophel's advice militarily was the best advice. He should have gone in and just taken David, just killed the king, um, because that would have saved the people then to work, to labor. You know, you don't kill the workforce, so to speak, just take out the king. Um, but what's amazing is God was the one overseeing even this. And so Absalom's confused. He buys the advice of Hushai, and the Lord's will is done. David remains king. So that's why he killed himself, because he knew that he was going to be um, on the losing side of the battle. Now let me just make one last application for you, because I, I want to take some time to kind of take all three of these weeks, and I want to piece them all together and show you something. Listen very carefully. Because maybe you're wondering, well, Todd, this has, been, this has been kind of a heavy series, The Sin and the Sins. It's three weeks of just seeing consequences. I'm glad to know God works through them and spotted them. That's good to know. Let me show you, though, how they point us to Christ, okay? Because you may still think, well, this is really about us, and I guess I can hang in there through consequences, but I want you to see something here. What God did here was he used an earthly king to save his people even though all around his people were sin and consequences. You follow me? What does God do in the ultimate king, Jesus Christ? He saves his people, even though around us are sin and consequences. And what's so great about Jesus is, unlike David, Jesus didn't cause his consequences. He never sinned. David sinned in 11 Many of the consequences are a result of that. It's God's judgment on him. And yet, even in that, God uses him as king to save his people. God's will is done. As this points to Christ's work, though, it's even greater. Because Christ never sinned. And yet, he was the one who endured the sin and consequences of others. And even in the middle of all of that sin by the Romans and the Jews, even in the middle of what Josh was so right when he said that it's a murderous a torturous place, as horrendous the cross is, even in the middle of all of that sin by man, what did God accomplish at the cross? The saving of his people. Church, are you grasping this? Church, listen, it was in the middle of horrendous sin and consequences that God actually did the very best thing for your soul. He saved you. That's amazing. No wonder the cross is referred to as a beautiful, terrible thing. No wonder Peter would say about the crucifixion, he would say that that by the hands of, of murderous men, they killed Jesus, and yet it was God's will to crush him. If you ask me to try to explain both of those, I'm going to come up short. It's like sitting over coffee and trying to explain all the complexities of, this cha- of these chapters. 
concubines and multiple wives and murders and double agents. I'll probably say to you, a lot of this I don't understand totally. But the point of the story is not man's morality. The point of the story is God's sovereignty to accomplish his will. And in 198, David's king in the gate. And in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is king on the cross. And he saves his people in spite of sin and consequences. Isn't that beautiful? This is how this points to Christ. And this is really the, the bigger picture for us to stare at. Which is why Romans 8 is a beautiful verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's what he doesn't say. He does not say there is therefore now no temporal consequences for those in Christ. He doesn't say that. Why? Because there are. Remember the video? Remember your story? Some of you have temporal consequences that actually were used by God to bring you to, your, to, to salvation. You have loss in your life. You have pain. There are things that you wish you could undo that you can't undo, but God used them to bring you to faith. But here's the good news. Though you may endure temporal consequences because of Christ, you will never endure eternal condemnation. That's what Jesus has taken away. And by the way, you don't want to make the other trade because what would a man give in exchange for his soul? Some do. Some say, well, I'll just take the, the temporal beauty. I, I don't want to be stuck uh, in, the, in the here and now with a bad road. So I'll make sure that I'm relieved of any kind of suffering now. But short-term gain for long-term pain is a bad deal, especially theologically. How much better it is to say, yeah, I'll take short-term pain, but because of Christ, I'll have long-term gain. This is what these chapters show. They point to Christ who has taken all of our condemnation, all of our sin, and suffered it for us, endured it for us, so that even in the middle of consequences that we undergo temporarily, we will not have to undergo condemnation forever. Man, thank you, O God, for Jesus. And thank you, O Lord, for the cross. The grandest picture of God's beautiful work in the middle of man's most horrendous sin. If you ever wonder if God can bring good out of evil, if he can use consequences from sin to actually accomplish his will, just look at the cross and know God will get his will done. Let's pray.